This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A bullet intended for someone else paralyzed Karina Sartgain from the waist down in 2012. She was 16 when she was shot outside her Aurora High School. Her story is featured in a new book called Shot, 101 Survivors of Gun Violence in America. New York photographer Kathy Shore brought many of her subjects back to where they were shot and took their portraits. Often their scars are visible, and so the images are intimate and sometimes hard to look at. Sartgain described the day she was shot. It was after school. She and her friends got caught in the middle of a gang rivalry. She saw a car speed by. My head was turned not even halfway, and I could see through my peripheral vision that somebody behind the driver was sticking something out, and I just remember hearing the gunshot, and I blacked out instantly, and I woke up, and I was already on the ground. And, like, I knew that something was wrong immediately because when I was laying on the ground, I couldn't move anything. I couldn't move my head. All I could move was my eyeballs. And I felt like my legs were, like, sticking straight up in the air. But when I looked down, they were flat on the floor, so I knew that something was wrong. And I understand that you weren't bleeding much. You didn't... I actually didn't bleed at all because it was internal bleeding. I had a punctured lung because the bullet was so small that I was trying to find somewhere to hide. So it was just messing a whole bunch of inside stuff up. So, um, Kathy, will you describe the portrait that you took of Karina? Uh, We've posted it to CPRnews.org. Uh, Well, Karina is a beautiful young woman, and she has a vitality and a positive energy and a a style to her, and I just wanted to have all of that come out. At the same time, um, the sadness of the situation of this beautiful, vibrant young woman uh, being paralyzed by this uh, action, I also wanted to have that kind of come out in the image as well. So while you can see her beautiful style with a leopard pillow on her wheelchair and uh, having a, a brightly colored bra under a, um, a pretty blouse that showed through and a, a mini skirt, this, the, her face has a, a bit of sadness in it. So it was kind of playing with with the two sides of uh, the issue. Now, I understand, Karina, that you had been back to the general vicinity of where you were shot, but you had not been onto that sort of patch of earth since it had happened uh, until you sat for the photograph. What was it like to return to that that spot? Well, it was very different because, like you said, I had gone back before, but it was just driving, you know, telling people like, oh, yeah, this is where I was shot and this is where it happened and this is where I was laying and all of that. So it was very different explaining that and then actually getting off of the car and, you know, being back in that position where I was last standing. I mean, it was kind of healing, but at the same time, I felt like I was moving forward. So it was it was nice. She gave me that opportunity because I don't think that I would have gone back on my own. What was it like to get a call? I'm assuming that Kathy called you and said, I understand that you were the victim of gun violence and I want to take a picture of you. And I want to do it potentially where you were shot. What, what, what was your reaction to that request, Karina? I was surprised for sure. But as soon as I knew the way she got my number, she got it through Antonius. And I had done a commercial with him in L.A. So instantly I was impacted with his story. So I was like, no doubt about it. If he's doing it, I want to 
I want to do it too. I want to give that same impact that he has given on me. Kathy, tell us about Antonius. Well, Antonius was the first person that I photographed, and he was shot in Brooklyn um, in the summer of 2013. And um, I had been thinking about doing this project, and I uh, heard him speaking about six weeks prior, uh, six weeks after he was shot on a New York public uh, New York public TV channel, New York One, and. Immediately, I uh, Googled and looked for him, and uh, we started an email dialogue back and forth, and I told him about my idea and asked him if he might be interested in being the first person that I photographed, and he said yes, and then I said, oh, by the way, I'm also thinking about photographing people where they were shot. Would that be okay? And he said yes to that, and then when we were at the uh, scene where the the place the location where he was shot, I asked him if he would sh- uh, let me photograph his scar, and he um, let me do that. And right after photographing him, he told me how good he felt that he had. Uh, it was such a cathartic experience that he had taken back this space, and he could, as Karina just mentioned, he felt like he could move forward. So I. I hadn't even thought about that in terms of the project, but then when I realized that it was healing to the survivors as well, I thought, wow, this is a project that I can do and is going to have uh, meaning to everyone that participates. And the project that we're talking about is called Shots. It's a new book, 101 Survivors of Gun Violence in America. And uh, there are three Coloradans featured in this Um it is a book largely of photography and then stories that accompany those photographs. And one of those Coloradans is Karina Sartgein, who was shot outside of her high school in Aurora in 2010. And Kathy, I guess uh, I would like to know more about what what prompted the project. Um, perhaps there are those listening to this who, who think it, it might be on the, the ghoulish side, even the dark side. What do you think? Well, uh, I think that that might be um, a first reaction, but I can tell you that this, while the subject is very dark and the stories are uh, sad, the survivors are anything but. They are amazing, inspiring human beings who uh, are positive and want to share their stories so that other people don't have to experience what they did. So. On one hand, you have circumstances that are are um, not ideal and can be thought of as depressing or sad, but the fact that the people who I photographed were not that way made me feel very um, motivated to finish this project and to share uh, the voice of these people who had gone through life-altering experiences and had come back out on the other side and um, were very, very heroic. I want to say that a study published in the American Journal of Medicine last year reports that uh, Americans are 10 times more likely to die from gun violence than people in other developed countries. Uh, The study is based on 2010 data from the World Health Organization. Another report finds that in 2015, gun use contributed to 80% of homicides in this country. And, and you did, as you say, in this book, focus on, on the survivors. 
I also think it's important to note that you include photos of gun owners who are victims of gun violence. Why was that important to you? Well, it was extremely important. This is a book that's meant to talk about all Americans. And many people in America own guns. And just because one owns a gun doesn't make them a bad person. And even and also on that same token, uh, just because you own a gun doesn't make you immune from gun violence. So um, the project has many gun owners. There's also an NRA member who was shot that's in the project as well. And the other two Coloradans, one of them uh, was in the Aurora Theater shooting. And I remember thinking, as I looked through the book, Harina, about the difference between someone who's shot in a really high-profile event, like the Aurora Theater shooting, whose anniversary is marked. You know, there are memorials erected. Um, and then someone who is shot, as you were, in an event that doesn't get as many headlines, and whose anniversary isn't marked by a community, for instance. Um, do, you, do you feel the difference there? And is that hard sometimes? It's not necessarily, because if you have the support that you, ha- that you need around you, like friends and family, everybody else's opinion doesn't really matter because you're, you're, you know what you believe in and you know that you're going to survive from this in that it happened to you, but you could move forward. When did you know that you had been paralyzed from, I think, about the belly button down? I realized that um, probably like three days when I was in intensive care, the doctors literally rolled in an x-ray and just said, this is it. And I just remember my my whole world just crashing down on me. But then my mom kind of reassured me, was like, it's going to be fine. Like, you're going to be fine. I understand you had a milestone recently. You've begun driving again. Yes, I just last week I began driving again and talk about independence. <laughs> this is um, something that you bought that modifies any car and allows you yeah, to drive. Yeah, they're portable hand controls that are able to be in, installed in any kind of vehicle. All you have to do, there's like these clamps that um, adjust into the foot plates. And you just push to break and then push to go. <laughs> Kathy Shore, just a bit ago, you talked about the imagery of people's scars. Um, what are people's relationships with their scars, with that visible sign of of them being shot? Well, again, it's a, there are 101 people in the project, and I can't speak uh, for everyone as a uniform group, but... My feeling was that most people were proud to show their scars because it um, showed what had happened to them and it uh, it was a badge of courage. And um, there were a few people that said they didn't want to show their scars, but um, that was fine because it, I wasn't forcing anyone to do it. I asked people if they wanted to do that. But, and most of the people actually did want to show them. And I want to say that the other two Coloradans, so there's Corey Romero. She was stopped at a red light in Fort Collins when she was shot in the neck and the shooter sped away. And there's Monique Gravely, who survived the Aurora Theater shooting, which was five years ago now. And uh, Corey's photo, uh, her scar is, is very prominent. Uh, so she agreed to have that taken as part of, of this imagery. 
Uh, Karina, you're you're 22. Is that right? Yes. And how do you see your future? I the sky's the limit. <laughs> I feel like this is something that happened to me, but it's not going to be something that defines how I live my life. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Karina Sarkayan of Aurora is one of three Coloradans featured in this new book, Shots, 101 Survivors of Gun Violence in America. It is by New York photographer Kathy Shore. As I said, you can see photos from the book at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. Now, a Colorado butcher who has carved out an unusual niche for himself. Jason Nauert of Woodland Park, outside Colorado Springs, is fast becoming known as the Army Guy. He meets with special forces soldiers whose missions take them far away from kitchens and refrigeration. He teaches them, among other things, to look for the best animals to kill for food during their deployments and then teaches them how to butcher and preserve them. And uh, Jason, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Help us understand the circumstances, the kinds of places these soldiers are in where they'd need to think about procuring their own meat. <laughs> yeah, so they if you imagine the world and the different climates that are, you know, you got hot, cold, wet, you know, dry combinations of everything everywhere they uh they developed a need to be able to eat clean protein and they weren't sure how to go about it weren't sure how to handle animals or anything like that and i just happened to be the guy that teaches um american culinary federation butchery course a certification and they said hey this is what we're doing can you help us develop it and so they talked about the situations, like if they go, we'll, we'll just use Africa as an example. All right. You know, it's 100 degrees or 80 degrees or whatever. We don't know, one, um, what a healthy animal really looks like, you know, when we're talking to a farmer or something like that. So I, I kind of discussed that and, and, and made a little manual for them. And so they go to the farmer and they find like what appears to be a healthy animal and then it'll go to the local slaughter or whatever, and then the army will pick it up, and then they'll take it back to wherever they're at. And then from that point, that's where I kind of took over and said, okay, this is what you're going to do. This is how you skin it. This is how you eviscerate, you know, all that kind of stuff. And here's how you're going to butcher it down. And here are some different methods of storing and, you know, preserving the meat. And is it that soldiers doing this. is it that soldiers were getting sick? Were they making the wrong choices? Um, yeah. So if you, you kind of think about, you know, America and the fact that we have regulations to keep, you know, diseases out of animals, off animals, and stuff like that, we're highly regulated. You go other other places where, you know, they're just villages and little little towns and stuff where they don't have regulations. So what they're used to eating and stuff like that isn't what we're used to eating. What we consider clean isn't, you know, to them, yeah, it's clean, but what they consider clean is totally different. So for, for them, they would eat, they would eat something local 
And they were like, why are we getting sick? Why are we getting sick? Well, the whatever they do to preserve meat might cause, and I, I like to, I kind of make fun of these guys and ourselves, our, our weak little American stomachs can't handle what they, you know, what those guys are eating. <laughs> but, and this is largely livestock that they they see out in the field and that they presumably purchase or trade for or something yeah. like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. These are, you know, they, you know, because you, you don't want to upset the locals and stuff like that. So they go to the farm, they find the farmers and they work out a relationship and they purchase animals from them and they let the, you know, the farmer handle the, 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 the bad end of it. And then they load it up and they run it back to, you know, whether they got to put it in coolers, if, if they've just got igloo coolers, because, you know, sometimes they can get that stuff or they wrap it up in tarps and and haul it back to wherever they're hiding. And then they they learned from me how to butcher it out so it lasts instead of just hacking a chunk of meat off and saying, oh, well, this is our dinner. And then the rest of the meat goes bad because they don't know what to do with it. Mm. Now they know what to do with a whole animal from nose to tail. I'm curious how you lengthen the life of meat. What what tools do you give them in the field that allows them to eat and do you eat healthily? So, you know, you can build a fire and you can smoke meat, which is a way of preserving meat. Um, there's other methods. If you dig down into the ground, you know, 48 inches or, or so, that ground temperature down there is about 52 degrees, somewhere in there, in, in that realm. And granted, it's not a cooler, but it's much cooler. And if you salt something and put it down in there, that preserves it because you're, by salting it, you know, and, and they have access to go places and, and get spices or whatever for off of local markets and stuff like that. And so that's another way to preserve it. So it's it's mainly just using smoking as a as a preserve and you know digging a deep hole <laughs> and salting things and let it hang. Um I did a little experiment on my own during the winter and I and I took a piece of pork neck and I salted it just just kind of not heavily but just enough and I threw it onto my deck um and I I just left it there for about I think it was about 6 or 8 weeks. Wow. And I went out and I actually forgot. I was like, oh man, I forgot I put that piece of meat out there. And I ran out and I grabbed it and I brought it back in and uh, I cut into it. There was no smell or anything like that. And I ended up eating the whole thing. And um, I talked to a soldier later on who I I'd kind of walked him through what I did. And he was going to a cooler climate. Um, I'm not sure where he was. But he had tried it with just a smaller piece of pork, and he said it worked great. And it worked as well. You're listening to Colorado yeah. Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with butcher Jason Nowers of Woodland Park outside Colorado Springs, who is gaining a reputation for teaching special forces soldiers to recognize healthy animals and how to butcher them when they are deployed and uh, Jason, I, I can imagine people thinking, well, wait, isn't this why there are MREs, meals ready to eat? These kind of uh, transportable, shelf-stable meals? Um, why wouldn't you just use those as opposed to, gosh, making a soldier deployed, you know, often in a war zone, dress their own meat? Um, the way I understand it, from them, because that, that was one of my first questions. I'm like, wait a second, you guys got MREs and yeah. this, that, and the other. 
And if you look at those those soldiers, like today's soldier, they're they're more like athletes than they are, you know, just the average, you know, I lift weights three times a week or something like that. These guys, they're athletes. So MREs don't have enough protein in them hmm. to they've got carbs, but they don't have enough protein in them for these guys to sustain weights and muscle mass. So the way it was described to me was if you go on a deployment and, you know, those guys, like I said, they're not the average soldier, you know, they're burning 6,500 to, you know, 8,000 calories a day and losing, you know, and just MREs are, I guess, from what I understand, basically to sustain you for, you know, four or five days at the most. But you I, have I to have like clean protein, some kind of protein intake in order to sustain sustain your weights um, and be that athlete that they need to be. Um, and by eating fresh meat gives you that protein intake and allows you to sustain those weights. What about recognizing healthy animals from the get-go? Is the, is the skinniest, I don't know, cow always the sickest? No, not necessarily. So I learned something while I was, while I've been working with these guys. Um, some of them are cross-trained as vet or as veterinarian specialists. So they, they also understand, you know, and there's usually like one or two guys there that, that do that, but they don't, they're not specifically doing that. So kind of my thing for my program is just a general, you know, it's, it's like you look at a person, they're, they got a runny nose or eyes are watering, their face is red, you know, they're not moving very good, stuff like that. I just give them general indicators like, is the animal moving? Is it eating? You know, did, you know, is it not laying in the corner or its ears down or up? Does it, huh. is there snot coming out of it? Is there pus in its eyes or are there, you know, stuff on their, growing under their skin? Just general indicators for them so they don't have to rely on waiting for whoever they, they're deployed with, whoever that vet tech is who's cross-trained and whatever else they, I, I don't even know what these guys do half the time, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that way they're not like relying on him. At least then they're like, Oh, okay, this one looks good. This one, Oh no, we don't want that one. And then they get it back. And then, then it can be, you know, like fully inspected at that point. So but from what I understand, they haven't had any issues to date. You teach this, I understand to these special forces, um, with meats that you procure from around Woodland Park, right? Um, yeah, th- I get it from uh, local purveyors down um, in Black Forest. I have some friends of mine that are uh, local farmers, and they they uh, they supply me with everything I need. And what do these trainings look like? What do they feel like? Um, it's it's pretty fast. Um, these guys are pretty fast paced, so. Just kind of imagine being out um, on a farm and we, we talk about the animals and all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, I, you know, we talk about healthy and identify and, you know, this is a goat, this is a sheep, this is a chicken, this is a, you know, this is this type of cow, stuff like that. And then after a couple of days of, of actually, they kind of work on the farm. Then we go, then we head back to um, the base or uh, commissary kitchen that I've procured or whatever. And we spend the next, you know, four or five days there and the animals show up, 
you know, after they've been slaughtered. And from there I teach them, okay, here are methods of doing it in the field. Um, as far as like skinning the animal and, yeah. you know, then butchering it and stuff like that. I, I teach them, you know, to keep the liver if they look healthy. You can eat the lungs if they look healthy. You can eat the heart. Um, I teach them how to clean intestines, pig and sheep intestines, because that you can make um, fresh sausage. Oh, or my. you can use the intestine is actually, if you think of salami, that's generally what salamis are made from. Jason, just, except just for, briefly before we go, I wonder, are, are there vegetarians in the special forces? Believe, believe it or not, I have run into three. I can't say that they're vegetarian, but they, they're very picky about what, like they'll eat specifically fish and every once in a while chicken. Uh. But- those guys also know the realistic, you know, they're realistic about it. And when they're out in the field, I think they pretty much will, <laughs> they'll, they'll do what they got to do. That is Jason Noward. He directs the Rocky Mountain Institute of Meat in Colorado Springs. And he works with the U.S. Army, teaching special forces how to butcher and store healthy meat while on deployment. You can watch a video featuring some of his techniques at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A school near the Colorado-New Mexico border takes students back in time to learn how to operate steam-powered locomotives. The Cumbres and Toltec Scenic Railroad runs daily uh, between... Uh, for tourists, that is. And it also offers separate courses for wannabe steam engineers. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has this story. What do a sawmill operator, sheep farmer, and software engineer for the Mars space probe all have in common? Other than the fact that today they're all wearing blue overalls, awe and respect for a 1925 steam-powered locomotive. It's a strange beast. It does seem to be alive. Tom Chennault, the sheep farmer, is from New Jersey. It's like it's got a heartbeat or something. It's very different from a modern machine you just turn on and off with a key. In order for us to take it out in the morning, someone has to come here, fire it up, get everything oiled up. Chennault and the other students marvel at the steam engine's durability and simplicity compared to what they use in their jobs. The technology of coal and steam to make power doesn't compare to the electronics of today's workplaces. Ed Lichtenfels from Littleton says if you make a mistake with the steam engine, you can recover pretty quickly or fix it. Not so with the software on Maven that he helped develop for the trip to Mars. I mean, you can do things like patch software and and correct for problems, but if you screw something up bad, you, you can't go to Mars and fix it. The Cumbres and Toltec is the longest and highest narrow gauge line in the country. There are seven daily trips for tourists, but this week, one of the engines, 487, becomes a classroom for a dozen men from around the country. It's day two of the four-day class, beginning in the tiny town of Chama, New Mexico. The men will rotate turns in the locomotive in groups of three as the train travels 64 miles of steep mountain canyons, climbing to a 10,000-foot pass through alpine meadows and high desert to Antonito, Colorado. 
In general, it, it starts out with a mild amount of terror. Ed Baudet, the railroad's manager of engineering and operations, says there are also two tunnels and two long trestles. It's rugged and challenging for the students. He explains that helping the trainees in the locomotive are professional railroaders. What we're going to do when we release the brakes is let it go back just a little bit, and then we'll give it some throttle. And I'll help you out if you need to. And then as soon as they actually get something moving, the terror tends to go away and they really get enwrapped up in it. They, they come off all smiles. One guy drives, one guy keeps an eye on the water, and Andy Taylor on fireman duty shovels heavy coal into a blazing hot firebox. Since we're going uphill, it's a lot of work. Taylor says he began lifting weights and running extra miles nine months before he came here, so he wouldn't... Run out of steam, so to speak. So. Operating what one of the men calls a hulking beast is very physical, but they're surprised to learn it's also a subtle balancing act, the right mix of water, steam pressure, and heat. Student Tom Chanal says it's the same with the driving. This is loaded with subtlety. The sensitivity of the throttle, the sensitivity of the brakes, they're exquisitely sensitive. This whole operation here is very much a time capsule. The railroad's Ed Baudet. It's one of those few places where you can get out of your modern Mercedes or Cadillac and step onto the gravel pavement and look around and think you're back in 1925. When the men aren't in the locomotive, they ride in the boxcars and compare notes. How'd it go? Uh, it's a fair amount of energy. Uh, you look like you worked up a little bit of a sweat there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I said, do I look like I went swimming? Many of the men had model trains as kids. They like learning about new machinery. And they're drawn to a machine that uses all of a human being's senses, something that's been lost with modern-day technology. Chuck Turner is a software engineer for a sawmill in Oregon. He says a lot of operating a steam engine is listening. You know, I'm kind of listening if there's some strange sound. It's like, hey, that, that part's a little loose there or something. So I'm kind of into it at that level, too. And for still others, like sheep farmer Tom Chanal, the engineering class is simply the chance to learn about something that's all but disappeared. I was curious how our predecessors did it, and the more that I learn, the more I see the problems that they were faced with, and the more I am in awe of what they accomplished. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. A bus full of tired teenagers arrived yesterday at the Southern Ute Reservation in Colorado. They are just back from Toronto, where they competed with 4,000 other athletes in the North American Indigenous Games. Kerwin Tom, who took a bronze medal home in wrestling, is on the phone with us. So is Ian Thompson. He directs the Sun Ute Community Center and helped organize Team Colorado for these Indigenous Games. Nice to have you both with us. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, Ian, Team Colorado had about uh, 60 athletes, mostly from the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute tribes in Southern Colorado. Uh, Why was it important for these young people to compete? Uh, We come from two very small communities uh, in Southwest Colorado. Um, And we're the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain tribes that, and most a lot of Colorado people have forgotten uh, that we even exist, which is a kind of a sad thing, but it's important that these kids get to see a wider worldview of 
of what's going on and the things that uh, they can expose themselves to if they work hard and, and do good things. Kerwin, congratulations on the medal. Uh, why don't you put me in that arena with you? What was the competition like? Uh, for most of the competition there, it was fierce, and there were big, bigger than I was, of course. Of course? Why do you say of course? Uh, for most of the people that I do go against, they're either bigger than me or stronger than me, but I say that I do everything in my power just to stay with them and try to beat them. I see. And uh, you wound up getting the bronze medal. Uh, talk about the environment at these indigenous games. We heard there that it's important to be uh, in that group with, with, with your peers. How did that feel? Uh, it felt good for uh, the most part. Tell me why. Um, the, condition, the conditioning up there was a lot better than it is up here in uh, Colorado. What do you mean by conditioning? Um, when I was down there, or when I was up there in Toronto, I could breathe a lot better than up here, because it is it is by sea level. Yeah. Gives you a bit of an advantage. Did you feel stronger in that environment? For the, yeah, for the tournament, I did feel a lot better. What has been your relationship with wrestling uh, to this point? How long have you been doing it? I've been wrestling for 10 years. I started out in the Cortez Cobras, and I went up to middle school. Then I went up to high school. A decade in this. So, Ian, the the athletes flew commercial to Toronto, and I understand that the the pilots got on the PA, uh, I guess, both ways to to introduce the team. Is that right? Yes, they did. I, it's just a, it was a really cool experience. Um, I was getting, getting real-time updates from coaches and uh, American Airlines when they boarded the plane, you know, they had this big giant team of kids coming in uh, wearing all the same stuff and they got on the, on the intercom and introduced them to the other passengers and um, told them where they were going and what they were doing. And I just really liked that because it sparked a a conversation with between the athletes and some of the other passengers. And again, like I said, a lot of people don't, don't even know we exist anymore. They think we're just part of history, but in order to see these kids going out and being part of the, the bigger world, I think was really important. Kerwin, do you have that feeling that you don't know the the world knows you exist? Um, sometimes I do feel like that, that we're not noticed in the world, but I know a lot of people know about us and, they know where we come from, and this is one of the nag is one of the big reasons why. Uh, again, the North American Indigenous Games. How does it feel to be with so many other Indigenous people? Um, tell me about that, Kerwin. Um, it feels good. It feels good to be with a lot of people from everywhere, basically, especially Native people. I want to note, uh, Ian, that you were not at the games. You were sort of getting updates as they went along. But um, what what was the standout performance by Team Colorado, do you think? Uh, well, but aside from the, the medals that came back, I think it's just an amazing feat for, you know, 5,000 athletes to be up there in our little corner of the world, come back with four medals. Kerwin, you know, of course, has, you know, got the bronze. Uh, we also have a guy from... And from Toyok as well, his name is John White, and he took two medals, uh, silver and cross country and another bronze in 2,000 meters. 
My nephew took a bronze in a 300 meters, and I, I just think it's an amazing feat. We also had a uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder kind of recognized Team Colorado as being someone that they want to associate themselves with. We had a little expose in our local newspaper. The One of the girls, uh, her name is Monica Lucero, <clears throat> she had the photo taken of her, and she was wearing an Oklahoma City Thunder shirt. And uh, I, I guess the PR person from the Thunder reached out to these girls and the parents and wanted to uh, give them something else. And um, actually, if you wanted to ask Monica about that, she can hear you on the phone right now. I mean, I just think it's an amazing achievement. Oh, well, Monica's right there, huh? Yes. Okay. We want to put Monica on the phone? Um, I think she's on the other phone. Okay. Not in my office. She's in the next office. She's in the next office. All right. But it sounds like you're all gathered there and uh, excited for the recognition that this brings. So I I understand that, um, Ian, uh, you're a member of the Southern Ute Tribe, and uh, you had your own personal experience with these games back in 2006 when the competition was in Denver. Um, That that left quite the impression on you. Yeah, uh, well, we got to uh, perform in Invesco Field, and we were down on the 50-yard line um, singing... And and I know we kind of wanted to highlight, you know, past experiences. Um, I don't really like taking the spotlight. The kids are the ones that are putting themselves out there and doing stuff. And um, I kind of just want to keep the spotlight on them and highlight what they do because this is really important, especially for our Native youth to get out there and, and again, like I said, be part of the broader spectrum of things and to be able to see those kinds of things. Um, But Monica can hear you right now if you wanted to ask her something. Monica could hear us. Okay, so she plays basketball, and you said that she got recognition from Oklahoma City Thunder, the basketball team there. And uh, Monica, how did did that feel to get that recognition? Uh, It felt pretty good, actually. Yeah. I was kind of excited. How long have you been in basketball? Uh, I've been in basketball since I was five. And what do you make of your performance at the Indigenous Games this year? Well, it sounds like it gives you pause, perhaps. Yeah, I did. I did the best I could. You did the best you could. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm afraid that's all the time we have, but uh, grateful to speak to you as well as Ian Thompson, who directs the Sun Ute Community Center. It's on the Southern Ute Indian Reservation. You also heard from Kerwin Tom, who won a bronze medal in wrestling, all at the North American Indigenous Games. This weekend, the Underground Music Showcase returns to Denver's Baker neighborhood for a 17th year. This four-day festival features independent, often underrepresented musicians from Colorado and beyond. Out-of-town headliners include experimental pop artist Zola Jesus, heavy metal band Red Fang, and New Orleans blues rocker Benjamin Booker. And a Colorado native also gets top billing. Esme Patterson performs Sunday night at UMS. In all, there will be more than 300 performances at this year's Underground Music Showcase, starting tomorrow night. And here with a preview of the Colorado Acts, 
is Alicia Sweeney from CPR's Open Air. She hosts the local music show Mile High Noon. Alicia, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So describe what this showcase feels like. It sort of uh, takes over the neighborhood. Yeah, there's just music everywhere and a sea of enthusiastic music fans out to watch it. So South Broadway is home to a lot of great music venues, but there's also unlikely places like a church and library that are transformed into a venue for this four-day festival. Oh. And you can see bands playing impromptu shows on the sidewalk in front of boutiques, their secret house shows, and musicians are hustling too, walking around handing out flyers or doing other creative things to get you to notice them. So you'll go to their show and uh, and like they hand out popsicles with their, the venue on there to say, hey, come see us at nine o'clock tonight. <laughs> and if you ask a musician, you know, 17 years in who's been playing this, it's also a festival for a lot of memories. People get engaged there. People play their first show at the UMS. They've also broken up there too. Uh, yeah, that's right. In fact, one of the Colorado acts that is calling it quits, I guess, after UMS this year, is Shady Elders. Tell us about them. Yeah, speaking of final shows, this is going to be their last ever show, which was actually really surprising to me. They've been pretty visible in the local scene for the last four years or so. They they have uh, great shows. Their songs have been used in commercials. They've even gotten some national attention, too. But they've sadly outgrown this project and amicably decided to end the band. And I just really love the front woman's voice, her songwriting. Their music is very dreamy. This is Shady Elders, the tune Trust from their album Inside Voices. Shady elders will be calling it quits, and I guess they're not alone. Who else is is wrapping up after UMS? Well, you know, local bands, The Outfit and Safe Boating Act is no accident, have decided to call it quits and will play their final shows at the UMS. Again, it's all amicable. And if you look at our scene, beloved bands like these two I just mentioned, it's just that they started playing together when they were in their early 20s and five to 10 years into being in a band together. They grow up and have to make decisions on what to do with their careers. And often groups can't make it work out because of full-time jobs or moving away to pursue a dream. So these two bands will be ones to see this weekend because they both are so fun live and I'm sure going to put on a heck of a show since it's their last. I've always loved the name Safe Boating is No Accident. (laughs) Um, You have chosen a few Fort Collins artists next. Slow Caves is a band that uh, has begun to make waves nationally. And before you tell us about them, why don't we hear Slow Caves? This is from the EP Desert Minded. Can you tell us about 
Slow Caves. What's their story? Well, this EP that we're hearing from, it's exciting. They signed a record deal with Old Flame Records out of Cincinnati, so they put that out. And they've done a lot of touring outside of Colorado this year, including playing South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, which I view the UMS here in Denver as our own version of South by. And the band has just found their groove. It's led by brothers Jakob and Oliver Mueller. They were born in Denmark. They've been in Colorado for a while now. But their upbringing inspires some of their music. And they're a young band, but they have a really cool, mature indie rock sound. And I say young because ever since this band has been on my radar, Jakob has never been actually to attend the concerts he plays because he hasn't been 21 years old. (laughs) (laughs) So I've seen him go into a venue, play a show, and immediately have to leave because of his age. How funny. But I heard he's turned 21 recently, so he'll be able to attend uh, more shows at the UMS. UMS Underground Music Showcase, and we should talk about Brent Coles, who will be there, maybe familiar to local music fans. Yeah, well, he fronted this group, Yumi and Apollo, up until a few years ago when they broke up and he became a solo artist and he really is a gifted songwriter with a unique voice and he's had some great mentors musically including Nathaniel Rateliff and his new EP is called Cold Times his backing band is members of another local group The Still Tide they're all great friends have such great musical chemistry together makes them fun to watch so this is Brent Coles the song Lift Me Up Leave Me Here So I gather you look forward to this event every year, Alicia Sweeney. Yeah, it almost feels like a high school reunion because you're you're reconnecting with all these bands, musicians, and fans that love this music as much as I do. Okay, tickets still available, I presume. Yeah. All right, Alicia Sweeney from CPR's Open Air. The Underground Music Showcase runs Thursday through Sunday in Denver's Baker neighborhood. You can head to openaircpr.org for more music from UMS artists. And this is Dragon Deer, another artist who's on the roster. I'm Ryan Warner. I'm not on the roster. This is CPR News.